This is a Word Fitly Spoken. By words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwyn Heidi. Today we're going to talk First Council of Constantinople. Zelwyn, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I have just got back from Bismarck today and gearing up to do some confirmation here pretty quick, so everything is, is moving right along. It's What heading, about you? Heading into Bismarck to trade in your pelts and, and other <laughs> trappings and... To get food for the winter, you know, the yeah. usual. <laughs> Pickling spice and meal. <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, doing doing well here. Uh, the fall weather starting to settle in, which is why some of you might be able to tell uh, by my voice. I'm, I'm enjoying the usual change of the seasons uh, crud that's going around here, so that's fun. But yeah, otherwise, you know, doing doing pretty good. Just uh, waiting, waiting for the season, you know. I hear you. And so winter will start for you in what about six, seven days? <laughs> A few weeks. Won't be long for real. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Constantinople, the first council. Um, Kind of an interesting one, right? What would what makes this council a little bit unique as compared to the other ecumenical councils? This council is kind of unique because it's kind of a weird one. It was convoked as a regional council by the Emperor Theodosius, which we'll get to, as a way of kind of consolidating his power in Constantinople. And it really takes another council, the Council of Chalcedon, to make it ecumenical. And so it's kind of got a lot of general weirdness. There were no Western bishops present, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about all this as we go along. But yeah, it, it is an unusual one, and it's definitely different from the others. Do you want to add something to that, Willie? No, no, I think that's, I think that's very good. Uh, you hit the nail on the head there. So let's begin, well, at the founding, you know, what are, what are the roots of this council. Uh, it's the Council of Constantinople, so that tells us um, a little bit about the setting. Where does it get its name? Well, if our listeners remember last time, and for anyone tuning in for the first time here, I would recommend them going back to our previous episode on Nicaea. The Emperor Constantine is really kind of the foundation of this. And Constantine, of course, was the one who convoked the council, the first council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council. And I actually have to add one little bit from that episode. It was Constantine himself who suggested the addition of the term homoousius. The term homoousius was chosen against the Arian heresy as a way of kind of defining who Christ is in relationship to the Father, that he is the same substance, that the Son and the Father are the same God, as opposed to two different gods like Arian Arius was trying to say. And so Constantine proposed that term, but it actually caused a lot of problems. And that's kind of where a lot of the tensions following the Council of Nicaea come from is, you know, accepting this term. The The reason why it was so, it was opposed even by otherwise good men was because they thought it smacked of Sabellianism. Uh, Sabellianism is also called modalism. The idea that there's only one God and he just kind of appears in three different ways to us. So that the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit is like God in three different disguises. And they figured, hey, if you're saying the Father and the Son are the same substance, well, you're just sounding like uh, like Sibelius. And so they didn't really like it. It wasn't biblical. 
And of course, the people, the the Nicene crowd, they said, well, anyone who opposes this is just a polytheist. You're saying that there's two different gods. And so it's this tension between the two that leads eventually to the second to the first council of Constantinople. Just a few little tidbits about Constantine then, and I kind of have to explain what I'm going to be doing here going forward, is because the history of the church and the history of the Roman Empire become very closely connected at this point. And it's really hard to separate the two so that you can't say like, okay, we're going to go from Nicaea to Constantinople as if nothing else happened in between. So we have to kind of talk about all of the history that goes in between in order to understand how we get from one point to another. And so you can kind of see what's going on between the two. So Constantine is famous, of course, for founding Constantinople on May 11th, 330, modern Istanbul, which, of course, it's been since, what, the 1900s, I think, or something like that, after the Turks took it over sure. in what is now Turkey. And he, he actually, became, after the Council of Nicaea, became somewhat favorable towards Arius because his sister, here's, and this is where it gets a little confusing, his sister Constantia, yeah, that's not confusing, had an Arian priest. And after she died, she entrusted this priest to him. And then this priest convinced Constantine that Arius got a bad rap. And so Arius eventually comes to Constantine and says that, you know, he didn't do nothing. He is a good boy. Uh, he uses his vague confession to say, yeah, I'm really a good guy. And he's very nearly restored to communion, but he dies just before the day that he would have been brought back into the church in Constantinople. Okay. Any questions about that, Willie, or do you want to add to that? Or No, just press F for Constantinople. And Yes. You know, <laughs> forever in our 14, 1453, <clears throat> the year that men cried. <laughs> right. And another important figure, of course, you might remember from the last episode is Athanasius, who was at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, his story kind of gets woven in throughout all of these emperors because he was being slandered by Arians who were now gaining political power because uh, they were becoming getting in the favor of the emperor and they were getting up into the good graces of the government and using that position in order to work against Nicene theology. Okay. They accused of all kinds of things like sorcery, uh, killing a man, sexual abuse. And Athanasius was, of course, was, was able to resist these accusations, but they kept pressing. And they eventually convinced Constantine that Athanasius was going to interrupt the food supply from Egypt, which was very important for Constantinople because it couldn't feed itself. And so Constantine finally exiles him. And then this is the first of the exiles of Athanasius that he has to undergo. So that's getting towards the end of Constantine's life. And as Constantine is getting towards the end of his life, he realizes that the empire is still too big for one man. And so he figures, hey, if I put my sons in charge, maybe this thing will go better because, hey, family's going to get along, right? Right. <laughs> and so he appoints his three sons and some of his other relatives as the leaders of the Roman Empire. And this is where it gets really confusing because Constantine was not a creative individual. His three sons, Constantine, also called Constantine II, Constantius, and Constans. Can you keep all that straight, Willie? I'm, I'm getting the uh, chart together right now. I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> and so after he puts them in charge, and then he famously dies 
and is baptized just before he dies and then is buried in Constantinople. And so that's really kind of the end of Constantine's life. So after Constantine dies, okay, his unfortunately his plan doesn't work. He has ambitious sons who want to be in charge of everything. Constantius is in charge of the East, and unfortunately he engages in imperial fratricide. He kills all of his relatives who might have some claim to the throne, except for his brothers. He leaves them alone. Constantine II tries to take over the territory of Constans, but is killed in the process in the year 340. And Constans himself was uh, regard, widely regarded as effeminate and was finally assassinated by his own troops in 350. Never a good sign. Never a good sign. Yeah, when your own troops aren't supporting you, it's not a good, a good thing. So eventually, Constantius gets in full control of the empire. Eventually, he's the only guy. Where the religious conflict comes in, however, is that Constantine II and Constans were both Nicene. They're both what we would consider Orthodox. Constantius is originally Orthodox. He's originally Nicene, but he ends up becoming Arian. And this is, I think, maybe one point where we can talk about this a little bit, because He's willing to bring Athanasius back from exile because of his brother Constans, but he also exiles him again and then works actively against Nicene bishops, you know, trying to appoint Arians and, you know, basically trying to promote Arian theology. And the reason why I say it might be worth talking about is because, you know, how does that relate to our idea of the relationship between church and state? You want to add something to that, Willie? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's totally foreign to us uh, today, but for the first... 1700 years of you know church history it's really not that foreign of a concept i mean even even if you go back and look at two kingdoms and that sort of thing it still isn't this radical separation of church and state like what we want to imagine today mm-hmm. that's the question does the government have a duty to affirm what the church teaches that's what kind of we bristle against and i suppose it's because of the conflicts and the apostasies that we've seen in official state religions right Mm-hmm. That's probably what makes people more more uncomfortable there. Mm-hmm. But is it always a moral evil to have the government siding with the church, or even at times having a role in the affairs of the church to some degree, to some limited degree here? Well, I think if you look at the history of, of this council, actually, you're going to see that while there were Arians working against the church and using imperial authority to do it, you also have Nicene emperors and leaders using the imperial government to promote orthodox theology. So it's kind of a two-edged sword. It it is it can be a source of great evil, but it can also be a source of great good if we're willing to see it for what it is. The main the main conflict that Constantius brings out is the the, the question again over homoousius and there's really a couple other uh, terms here I have to quickly define because they're the ones that most people or the moderates would be the ones willing to support, and that is homoiousius and homoios. Willie, what what do those terms mean? Homoiousius and homoios. Uh, homoios meaning the same, and homoi meaning like. So it's a mm-hmm. question of is is Jesus God or is he like God? Mm-hmm. Right. And so we obviously want to affirm that he is God. Right. Yeah, so homoiousios being the the similar, that's kind of like saying like two people are 
you know, we're, we're both men, like Willie and I are, are both men. And so we have a similar substance, but we're two different people. And so, you know, we're, we're close, but not really the same thing. Whereas homoios would just be like, you know, it's just like one thing being like another. Sure. And so the, the, the reason why these things become more supported is because they're much more vague terms. You know, that you can attract lots of supporters by saying, see, we can all get under this camp, you know, of the homoousios or homoios. And therefore, we don't have to be in conflict because they all reject a group of radical Aryans who come up around this time called the uh, Anomians or the Eunomians, which was literally the different substances that God the Father and God the Son are completely different from each other. Everybody rejected these dudes. You know, nobody wanted to be their friend. But you basically what happens then is you have a lot of regional councils during this time quibbling over this debate between Homoousius and Homoousius or Homoias. You have a modern one at uh, Sirmium, which is in modern Serbia, and 357, where they straight reject the Nicene Creed. Because Constantius really wants the, the new imperial orthodoxy to be on the word Homoias, like. He, again, he wants everything to just be kind of vague so that everybody can get behind it so that his empire would stay together. Sounds familiar. Right? <laughs> I know. It's like, let's just keep everything together rather than the truth. But that's really, that's really what he was going for. But then we have the rise of a very interesting character, one that our listeners may already be familiar with, Julian the Apostate, as he's known to history. Uh, is actually a a born and raised as a Christian. He was the son of Constantine the First's brother. So, in other words, he's Constantius's cousin. But he uh, he grows up to reject his Christian upbringing. Yeah, so he's basically that kid we all know who took who went to college and took intro to philosophy his freshman year <laughs> and bought a fedora, <laughs> and the rest was history. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he'd be he'd be quoting Nietzsche if he was alive today. So he becomes a, a very austere kind of figure, somewhat given to flattery, according to a, a contemporary historian. But Constantius uses him as a way of dealing with some some tribes that were giving trouble in what is now modern Germany, the Alamanni. And so he's basically appointed as second in command in the West and told to go take care of this of this problem. And he's very good at it. He fights with his troops. He's, he's a very noble kind of the kind of person you'd want to follow after. So I guess he's not a total neckbeard, but, but, and he, because he's so effective, he's acclaimed Augustus, which means he's basically acclaimed emperor in the year 360 by his troops, which is a direct revolt against Constantius. And Constantius regards it as such. And so they go to war with each other. But before they can actually engage in battle, Constantius dies suddenly in 361, which means that Julian is the sole emperor of the entire empire. And now, where he had been secret before about his paganism, he becomes very open about it. And he tries very hard to make paganism the official religion of the Roman Empire again. Yeah, so he's going to reopen temples. There's going to be something of a of an attempt to counter-signal Christianity to some degree. Uh, what would paganism have looked like in Julian's day? What would it look like? It would. Well, I mean, you would have the, the official cult. He's very interested in 
reviving the sacrifices and um, the basically trying to divination and that sort of thing, you know, sacrifices to figure out what the future is going to look like. He basically wants to eliminate the Christian influence in the empire and try to reinstate the old Roman gods. Okay. Unfortunately, we can't get into much more detail than that if we want to do this all in one episode. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Moving on, moving on. Moving on, moving on. But anyway, so his campaign is a very subtle one. The first thing he does is he says, we're going to let everything go. Complete religious toleration. And the reason why he does this, and this is what's so interesting about this, the reason he does this is because he says that there is no beast so vicious as Christians are with each other. And basically his point was, is if we let everything go, everything is legal, then Christians will basically devour themselves. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I mean, that, that leads us to the question of, you know, is our modern religious tolerance a, such a good thing as we think it is? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and, and part of that does prove to be a little bit true, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, That's what makes it sting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, forget about just the fracturing into denominations, but look at infighting within supposed, you know, people of the same confession. Mm-hmm. And, and and just the vicious attacks. You know, th- there's always a time or there is a time for debate and even dissension, but oftentimes it does degenerate into something different entirely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and so his hope was if we just let everything go, they'll eventually just kind of destroy themselves. His second point was, is no Christian could hold a teaching office, which means he basically barred Christians from holding important public offices. And that was actually fairly effective. And if it had gone on for a while, it probably would have been the the most effective of everything he tried to do. If you basically take over the schools and and, and not allow Christians to teach or to force them to teach uh, the old pagan myths only, then they they couldn't do it in good conscience. He was he was very shrewd. Julian was he knew he knew what he was doing. And at this time, and this is important for later, you have the rise of a, a man named Apollinarius, uh, becomes the the founder of Apollinarianism, which is important for the later on when we talk about the council itself. He was a fellow student with Julian, and because of all of this pressure, he actually tries to make Christianity respectable by rewriting the scriptures into classical forms. So basically trying to make them sound more like Homer or something like that. And then that way, you know, they could be read in, in good, in good, polite society. Apollinarianism, of course, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. He eventually comes to the belief that Christ basically has no rational soul. God became human, but he's not really human. It's more like the divine took over the body kind of a thing. And so he really only has one, one soul. And that's, that'll be more important that we'll talk about when we get to the, to the council itself. And then the last thing that Julian tried to do was to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem, which, again, would have been a very subtle, kind of smart kind of move because he knew from his Christian upbringing that the temple had been superseded. But he's prevented from doing so, we're told by the historians, from by miraculous occurrences like fires that they couldn't put out at the site. And even a, a similar sign of a cross in the sky as like Constantine saw at the Milvian Bridge. So whether you want to believe that or not is up to you. Well, it is interesting that throughout history, there are all these failed attempts at resurrecting a temple. Mm-hmm. And we even see it today, the, these attempts to you know bring it back. But that's 
dispensationalist eschatology a subject for another another episode but another episode entirely yeah yeah just just saying just, put it <laughs> just throw it out there breadcrumbs <laughs> follow the follow the trail follow the trail and then and then of course julian expels christian bishops he actually lets athanasius come back out of exile but then he kicks him out again so why does he let athanasius come back mostly because he doesn't care Again, just this general religious tolerance. He says, you know, you can come back. I don't care. But then he basically, Athanasius being the character that he is, gets himself in trouble again and is promptly exiled. So, right. Our, you know, our great preachers, it's really, it's really great. Our great theologians and great preachers, everybody goes, you know, I just, I just wish he was here today. You know, he would have such lovely things to say to us. It's like, you would throw him out. He'd be on CRM. You know? <laughs> He'd be a jerk. Yeah, he'd yeah. be bagging groceries down at the Piggly Wiggly, you know, just trying to <laughs> pay his Cobra payments. Like, don't kid yourselves. <laughs> we give thanks for him, but yeah, sometimes the saints aren't the best no. human beings. Well, so. you know, and they're, well, but they're but they're more fiery and they're more direct than what we are actually comfortable with. Yes, you know, everybody exactly. wants them back, but until they're back, <laughs> well, yeah. until you, until you hear what they have to say. Right. I think the only exception to that's been Calvin, who was kicked out of Geneva, and then they begged him to come back, and he died there. So that's the <laughs> inverse of that that I can think of. But maybe they were just maybe they just liked it in Geneva at the time. I don't know. They they liked the abuse. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so yeah, uh, last uh, just another minute or so in this segment. So this is going to happen, and then we come to the perpetual enemy of the Romans, the Persians. Right. They they've been they've been the perpetual enemy of the Romans because ever since Crassus attacked uh, the Parthians, which was a, a Persian kingdom in 53 BC, Rome had more or less been at war with Persia on and off again ever since. In fact, they're going to continue to be at war with Persia for another 400 years. So they're kind of like the perpetual enemy. I don't know, uh, like Bizarro to Superman or something like that. I'm not. I'm just throwing something out there, but. At this point in history, they're reformed as the Sanasid Empire or the Neo-Persian Empire. And under the leadership of Shapur II, one of their greatest kings, he's trying to get back all of the old territory that they had lost to the Romans. And so he's actually a rather interesting character because he might be the only king in history crowned while still unborn. I think that's just a little interesting uh, bit of history there. Anyway, and so Julian ends up going to fight against the Persians, you know, because Shapur is coming, but he's killed in battle and is apocryphally stated to have said as he died, you have won, O Galilean. Whether or not he actually said that is a matter of debate. He probably didn't, but it's, it makes for a good story. So. Sure, sure. All right. We've got more new Roman history coming up right after the break here on Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken.
This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, talking first council of Constantinople. Well, Zelwyn, tell me a little bit about Jovian. Yeah, so after we just got done talking about Julian's death, of course, and after Julian dies very suddenly while on campaign, they figure, hey, we need to put somebody in charge. And so they uh, they make an emperor out of kind of a nobody named Jovian, who's very anxious to basically consolidate his power. And so he concludes a bad treaty with the Persians, basically giving them way more than they deserved. So it was it was not good for the Romans and and tries to get back home to Constantinople. He is Nicene, which is, of course, different from Constantius, who was Arian and Jovian, who was pagan. So he is, you know, on, on the Orthodox side and he does take some steps to reverse what Julian had done. But he was also kind of tolerant of Arians even though he was also uh, fairly disliked in the empire because he was somewhat self-indulgent. I mean, isn't this a pattern that we see? I mean, even post-Reformation, uh-huh. uh, you have rulers who are very orthodox on the on one side, but then, you know, for whatever reason, you get somebody in power who's all about unionism, for example, or some kind of ecumenism. I mean, it's, it's really cyclical. We see this really time is. and time again. We'll eventually get down to Theodosius, and he's kind of unique in that he's orthodox and very passionate about what he believes. You know, he's he's not a complete dirtball morally. <laughs> but anyway, Jovian is kind of a, a quick little side note in history because he dies on the way back to, to Constantinople, either because he was suffocated by plaster fumes in the house that he was in, or he was possibly poisoned. Nobody really knows, and nobody really cared. And history just kind of moved on. Right. Well, <laughs> Poor, we got him out of there, so. Yeah, so time to get somebody else. <laughs> so then in 364, after Jovian dies, and this is the end of, well, Julian was the end of Constantine's house. And so Valentinian begins the is the beginning of a new house, because he's acclaimed emperor after the death of Jovian. And he's he's also kind of a, a nobody. I mean, he was a, a general in, in the wars and is well-respected, but basically we're starting with a completely new line of emperors here. And after he is uh, elected emperor, he basically appoints his brother Valens, who's actually going to be much more important in all of this, as the emperor in the east about a month later. And Valentinian goes into the west to deal with the Alemanni again, because the Germans always cause problems. I think that's just true of history, right? And he, he also appoints his eight-year-old son, Gratian, as co-Augustus or co-emperor in 367. Valentinian is an Orthodox guy. He is Nicene in theology, but he's very hands-off. He says it's not the business of a layman to deal with the affairs of the church, which makes him remarkably different from virtually every other emperor in this time period. We would love that today, though. <laughs> Man, this guy's solidly orthodox, um, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with what we're doing. Yay! Yay! Let's go. Hey, yeah, you still have to bake that cake. Hey, man, this guy's confession's good. I don't know what to tell you. He won the election. <laughs> Just deal with it. Just deal with it. Our guy's uh, in Our guy. Yeah, exactly. But actually, it's, it's not all that great of a thing, even for Valentinian, because... He appointed Valens as co-emperor in the East, and Valens is not the kind of guy you want to have in power. Oh, Well, first of all, 
He's violent. I would describe him as violently Aryan. He is even more than Constantius had been, is now actively opposing uh, Nicene theology. He wants to have that minimalist position of homoios again and is trying to make it imperial in doctrine. And he's exiling, replacing, even executing Nicene bishops who oppose him. I thought this was particularly gruesome in that he once put 80 Nicene bishops onto a boat and set the boat on fire. Not the kind of guy you want to have in power. It's one way to do theology, though. (laughs) Just by straight executing your opponents. People like Lord of the Rings, so I don't know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then press F for Athanasius. He finally dies in 373 and is succeeded by St. Basil as the primary Nicene leader. And Basil is the one who is the, the most outspoken of all of the Nicene theologians. He was Born in 329, becomes bishop in 370. He's actually going to die nine years later because he's just a very energetic kind of guy. Can't sit still. And his brother, uh, Gregory of, ne- of Nisa, is also a good theologian and will be important in all of this. But uh, Gregory is a bad administrator because he's actually deposed in 376 for mismanagement of his diocese, uh, but restored in 378, all of which will play an important role at the council. Okay. And then also at this time, I just want to point out, too, you have the rise of a group of, of heretics called the Nutomachians or the Macedonians, literally the fighters against the spirit. These are, these are guys kind of like Arians who are saying if the father and the son are similar or like in substance, the Holy Spirit must be something altogether different. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not God, as some of their more, more extreme adherents would say. Yeah, and I think you see that evident in certain groups today, don't you? Sure. And in, even in the in some some of the language of evangelicalism, where the spirit isn't treated as a person so much as a force or some kind of substance to be quantified. Sure. A feeling. Yeah. A feeling, <laughs> yeah, or something. But and 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 I and there are actual groups that'll say there's the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit over here is this whole other thing. And you saw it in some of the groups in the Second Great Awakening, but you do see it preached by you know Pentecost, certain Pentecostal televangelists and stuff today. A form of that's probably somebody like Benny Hinn, who teaches that there's seven Holy Spirits Oof. or something like that. You know, that's probably some form of this. Sure. And and so and folks listening, you know, we have a lot of history and we have a lot of facts, but all of this is part of our shared history as Christians. And a lot of these theological issues, really all these theological issues in in some respect, are very much relevant for our theological discussions today. Because sure. just because the heresies are stamped out or, or officially anathematized doesn't mean that they die. Right. You know, they go underground and they fester. Or sometimes another heretic, you know, a thousand years later, invents this new doctrine. Well, it turns out it was just a heresy from a thousand years ago. You know, no. uh, so nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Exactly. So anyway, so uh, the goths. Tell me a little bit about the goths hanging out at Hot Topic, wearing their <laughs> leather spike bracelets and listening to, <laughs> listening to insane, insane Clown Posse or something like right. that. Yeah. Well, let's not confuse the juggalos with the good people of the emo, or the, <laughs> of the goth community. Sorry, emos. Emos. <laughs> Don't write letters. I know emo is not goth. (laughs) 
I was a young man too once. Once. (laughs) Oh, the Goths were a a group of Eastern Germanic barbarians who basically had been moving out of the east or moving out of the west towards the east and eventually settled near the Black Sea. And part of why they're they're coming in and they're important is because Valens had to suppress a an uprising who tried to take over his his throne. He's able to suppress it, but these Goths were the ones who supported his opponent. And so he is going to war with them. And it's actually going to be very important, not only for this time in history, but also for all of, all of late Roman history, because eventually it will be the Goths who take over Rome and cause the, uh, are, are part of the cause of the fall of the Western Empire. So this is, this is a big moment in history. They're also Arian because under Constantius, they, uh, he had sent an Arian missionary named Ulfius or Ulfilas who had made them Arian with imperial support. And so they are Christians, but, but they're, but they're heretics. So these barbarian heretics are now on the move because the Huns coming out of the East are starting to push them. And this is this is actually not Attila the Hun, uh, who is more more well known to history. He's actually a century later, but the Huns are moving, and therefore the Goths are on the move, and they say, "Hey, we need to find somewhere to live." Now Valens had concluded his war with them after the, after his after the uprising, and he also needed troops to fight other wars, and so he decides to let these Goths settle within the empire to the north of Constantinople in what was called Thrace. But what happens when you have a huge group of people who suddenly move into an area? Hold on a second. Hold on a second. You're saying they let a large group of people who are not acquainted with the culture come in and it leads to disastrous consequences. Really gets the noggin joggin. Hmm. Don't know where we heard this before, but part of the problem was is they had because they had nowhere to live. They also had no food, and and it would have gone better if he didn't have some really unscrupulous, wicked generals who mistreated them and basically extorted them for even basics like food, enslaving them in some cases just so that they'd have enough to eat. What do you think the Goths did in a situation like that? Well, you know, you you poke the animal with a stick enough times, it bites back, right? And it and, bites back. And oftentimes the big army underestimates, or the big well-equipped guys underestimate the smaller uh, and lesser equipped uh, group. Yes, so, and that's exactly what happens. Right. Yeah. So they engage in the, the Gothic War, and there was a number of smaller battles, but eventually you get to the battle of what's called Adrianople. And that's important because it's at Adrianople that Valens, who got impatient waiting on Gratian, the son of Valentinian I, uh, who had died a few years before. He got impatient, and so he says, you know, they're just a bunch of barbarians. I can win this. We got this. Let's go into battle. And it ends up being a utter and complete defeat for the Romans. They lost something like two-thirds of the army at, at the Battle of Adrianople. Wow. A, a contemporary historian likens it to Cannae, uh, where Hannibal had basically spanked the Romans hard several centuries before. So this is like w- this is like history changing, kind of epic making kind of battle that they that they lose at, and Valens himself is killed in the in the rout, and maybe during the battle, and he might have been burned alive while hiding in a farmhouse. It's nobody really knows. 
but it's just, it was a bad situation. So that brings us then down to just before the the council itself, because now we're in about the year 378, somewhere in there. The council itself is 382. Now that Valens has died in, in the east, Gratian, the emperor in the west, decides to put in charge a man by the name of Theodosius. Theodosius uh, had had gained some notoriety because uh, some fame because he had he had done some wars in the west and so he's a he's a well-known general and he makes him emperor in the east to deal with this situation to deal with the goths to deal with the religious situation to figure out how to bring some stability in the east again following adrianople and following all the religious um, upheaval and theodosius is very orthodox as i had mentioned a few times before where other emperors had actually done some legislating against paganism, Theodosius basically allows it to go even further. You know, he's allowing temples to be shut down. He's allowing paganism to lapse. He's allowing everything to... He may have even shut down the original Olympic Games, okay? Because they were also pagan events. I like him. I like him. (laughs) I like him already. (laughs) And so that finally brings us then to... The situ- immediate situation of the First Council of Constantinople. Do you want to hit on anything before we get into that, Willie? Or no, what do you want to do? I think it's good. Let's jump right into the to the odd situation. To the um, odd situation surrounding the the council. Okay, so in the year three eighty, then Theodosius does a very very brave move by de- decreeing Arianism to be illegal across the board. So now Arianism is just straight illegal by imperial law. They, they are heretics by law. The, their property will be confiscated. They can no longer assemble. Assembly is forbidden. And, and large portions of the empire are still mm-hmm. Arian. Right. Even Constantinople itself is largely Arian at this point. Now, let me ask you this. What is your opinion on on the emperor simply decreeing a certain theological position to be illegal. Well, that really brings us back to the question of church and state, doesn't it? Yeah. Because we're really dealing with the reality that Arianism dies largely because it became illegal. And had it not become illegal, I don't know how long it would have continued to go on. I mean, yeah, we still deal with it today, but nothing like it did then. Right, right. I think there is a great blessing in what Theodosius did even if it is maybe problematic in what he did. But I would say that it is definitely in service of the church. What's your opinion? Well, I mean, it gets complicated, right? Um, (laughs) Because you've got so many different things um, happening here. It it, it is interesting because as Lutherans, we discuss this all the time. And Mm -hmm. yet the well-being of, say, Martin Luther, the fact that he gets to keep his head is because the prince came down on one side of the theological debate and literally saves his neck. Right. Yeah. So it's not entirely different. Even the Augsburg confession is addressed to Charles V. Right. 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 So, you know, whatever we come to, we can't just simply say separation of church and state and that's it from a theological perspective. Mm -hmm. Now we can, we can debate, you know, the principles of our government and that's good, but we can't come down at least in my opinion, and say that when the government sides with the church, 
and even to some degree enforces certain things about the church that it is inherently wrong. Right. Yeah. Well, right. It's inherently <laughs> wrong. So at least that's the way I see it. It's it's the model set forth. I'm realizing the Old Testament's a bit complicated. Right. But it's a model set forth very early in Christian history, starting with the Roman Empire, and then something that continues on. The Christianization of countries and the conversion of kings is not insignificant. Right. And, and the church in many, many lands would not have flourished the way it did apart from that. So it, it is it is part of providence. You could even say that many of us probably would not be Christians now had it not been for this kind of imperial Christianity. Right. Because, because our, our ancestors, like I know... You know, I'm generally Northern European in, in extraction and even, you know, a fair amount Scandinavian. Scandinavia resisted Christianization among the longest in Europe. And it was only because of men like King Olaf the Great that like Norway, for example, was finally able to become Christian at all. So right. we don't want to disdain this this approach and say, oh, it, nothing good has ever come of it because, yeah, good things have come of it. Yeah, and, and then you've seen those countries eventually apostatize, right? for lack of a better word there. And people go, well, when you have these official religions, it wasn't the religion of the heart and blah, blah, blah. Spare me. Spare me. There were a lot more devout Christians under Christian monarchy, okay? And they were, and they were devout, and they were real. And I'm not going to judge their conversion based upon the fact that they were born in a country where you, you were made a Christian by virtue of your baptism into the official state religion, which was Christianity. That's absolutely <laughs> and utterly ridiculous. So so as they apostatize, they're they're now becoming I mean, here's 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 evidence of, of judgment. They're becoming Muslim, Islamified, or sure. you got these Odin guys over here, you know, going back to Norse paganism in those countries mm-hmm. or, or Celtic paganism in the British Isles or whatever. Yeah, but they're not going full force, though. I don't. No, no, I don't, no, no they're not. They're just going to wear the Thor hammer necklace and shave their heads weird, and shave their heads weird because I don't think like in the the Celts are going to start actually sacrificing people again. But eh, that's that's just me. Well, I mean, <laughs> hey, in one way, in, in a couple of ways, it's not entirely too far away. I know, uh, I know. But I'm, I'm I'm becoming like old man yells at cloud here, but. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Grandpa Simpson, but it is true. I mean, we're so quick to, to just come down and, and, and judge, A, the, the emperors, and then sort of indirectly judge all of the conversions that happen under them, or at least under mm-hmm. that system of power. And it's, and it's absolutely ridiculous. Right. And, and everybody wants to point to the Inquisition or something like that or, or whatever. But look, Christian monarchy is responsible for the mass, con- and I'm and I'm using you know the Roman Emperor in this context too, <laughs> for the largest conversions of Christians that the world's ever seen geographically, right? Yeah. Um, but now I say responsible. Excuse me. The Holy Spirit's responsible, but under this domain <laughs> where the gospel was allowed to flourish, right? There's yep. some kind. Of, there's a romanticism about persecution. Well, when the church goes underground, she's more sincere, she's leaner, and, and there there might be some truth to that. You you will get more sincere believers when it's dangerous. At the same time, you don't wish for that and say that the, the, that the church, that she's somehow lesser when she's free to preach the gospel. 
we've romanticized suffering to the point and romanticized persecution to where it's almost idolatry. It's a fiction sure. that we've imagined. We don't want that. Does God preserve his church in spite of it? Yes. But God also grows his churches in time of great acceptance and in great prosperity. And we should thank God for that. That's all I'm saying. Well, and, and Julian himself just goes to show that, you know, religious tolerance or the government staying, you know, out of things isn't necessarily the best thing either. <laughs> right, right. I know he's kind of complicated too, but I mean, he he's allowing everything. And so in an effort to basically discredit everything, yeah. except yeah. for what he wants. Yeah, but, you know, he's... You know, he's like William Penn or something. Everything, everything's cool for now. That's what I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna base my <laughs> Julian the Quaker. There, Julian you the heard Quaker. it. We're fitly spoken. <laughs> oh, they see uh, they, those guys. But uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry, brethren. No, we love you. We love you, sort of. Anyway, so yeah, so we've got that. And let me step down off my my pedestal here. No, no, no. It was it was good. It was good. <laughs> but just to bring us back around a little bit here, in order to ratify this new this new order, this new imperial way of doing things. Theodosius convokes the, the Council of Constantinople in two different sessions, one in 381 and the other in 382. But as I kind of suggested at the beginning of this episode, this is kind of a, a generally weird council because, first of all, it was a regional council. There was no Western bishops at all. And it was not regarded as the second ecumenical council until the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Right. So it's an ecumenical council sort of retroactively. Retroactively, yeah. And then even more than this, and this is going to get really interesting once we get into the canons themselves, it's canons of the first council of Constantinople were rejected in the West for over 900 years. Yeah. And even, even disputed, right, the number of canons. Yep, even disputed how many there actually were, because we don't have the the original documents from this council. Some of them were lost. It really depends very heavily on Chalcedon for being what it is. And the reason, and it, it's finally in the year 1274 at the Second Council of Lyon, where it's finally accepted as the Second Ecumenical Council in the West. Yeah, so that's, even, post, that's post-schism, yeah. Yep, post-schism. And so and it, it is recognized somewhat by uh, Pope Hormistas, who died in 523. Yeah, and you get another couple, but, well, I think even after Chalcedon, you know, he accepts the canons, but with like one reservation or something right. like that, or under protest right. or something. Under protest, yeah. So it's really just a big quibble in the West. Gregory the Great is another one who accepts the accepts it as it is. But that's just why it's kind of weird, because it really takes that other counsel to make it what it is. All right, we're going to take a, another break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken.
We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zoe and Heidi talking First Council of Constantinople. Before we get into the canons, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the creed a little bit, specifically the Nicene Creed. Now, Mm -hmm. the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, (laughs) which is actually what we, you know, confess for the most part, is related to this council in a way, but but there's some dispute about that, right? Right. Yeah, because of the the regional character of the council and because of some of the the historical documents being lost, it really becomes the creed as we know it at Chalcedon. But it is expanded at this council, I mean, as far as as we can tell, into the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed. Although it would become just, just the Nicene creed in the Middle Ages. So we don't have to be. So we don't have the filioque just yet. Yeah, yeah. It's something right. like who pro- it's like it's like Lord Giver of Life, Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father. So it still continues on like that, and he's right. by the prophets in yep. the article about the church. Yeah, so that's where that's where this is going to come from. So yeah, we're gradually seeing that that creed being expanded and built here. That's significant because these additions are going to, in part, lead to the Great Schism, right. In 1054. 1054. But that's another podcast coming up. So we'll, we got to get through this council yeah, first. Yeah, we got we got a few councils to go yet. So, but that but then that brings us to the the, the main business of the council of uh, the the canons, sometimes numbered at seven. Although again, we're not really entirely sure. Yeah, I think some historians only give you three. Right, um, like the first three or four. We're probably done in 381, and then the last three were probably done in 382. But again, a lot of the documents were lost. There may have been more. It's it's kind of a mess. But this is what we have, the seven. So let's just start at the beginning then. What is what is the, the first canon? The first canon is going to be a confirmation of the Council of Nicaea and the rejection of the heresies that it rejects. Yep. And also a number of heresies that I've tried yeah, to some, some sort of out. like mutant things that grew out of those heresies. Yep. So you have the the rejections of the Eunomians. Remember, those are the Arians who said that the the Father and the Son are two different substances. You have the rejection of just Arianism. Also, the the Macedonians or the Nudomachians, those who are fighting against the Spirit. Sabellianism, again, modalism. Marcellianism, which is the weird belief that the the Son will come to an end after the final judgment. Right, right, (laughs) right. That he'll be like absorbed back into the father. You get all kinds of weird stuff like this in church history. So, and then Photonianism, which is basically hyper Marcellianism, basically like the sun ended at the ascension. I mean, I don't even know what to say about these guys. I mean, do you want to comment on them? Well, no, you pretty much got it there. It keeps getting weirder and weirder. Weirder and weirder. And then the Apollinarians, which we mentioned earlier, that yeah, Christ they, has no rational soul. Yeah. Or no, like, no mind. Like his human nature is only his body. Yeah, just obliterated by like the a, like divine. Like a mech suit that he's wearing or something. <laughs> Christ in the mech suit. Or, or uh, Edgar from uh, Men in Black, right? Ooh, that's a, that's yeah, a better that's one. one. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good, good one. one. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm here that, for, folks. <laughs> that's Apollinarianism, the, the Edgar suit. The Edgar suit. So basically... And then, so that's the the first canon. I think that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. So the second one's going to be really interesting and really applicable for us. Uh, the reemphasis on 
bishoprics and jurisdictions and how there's no interference between them. Right. So you mind right. your business. Different dioceses don't interfere with other dioceses. Yep. Alexandria leaves Antioch alone and Antioch leaves Jerusalem alone and Rome leaves everybody else alone. You just mind your own business. I mean, that's kind of the, the point. And in theory, it's been that way for some time, but, you know, there are always exceptions throughout history. But why is why is that such an important canon? And why do you think the, the West got kind of upset about this this idea? Well, because the Bishop of Rome is the chief. He's he's the guy who has broad authority over. He's They're not quite there yet, but he's going to move beyond first among equals mm-hmm. and become an actual power over them, which we'll talk about more in canon three right but the idea of so the eastern orthodox have this today they have the ecumenical patriarch but he's still not free to interfere say with the russian orthodox or the greek orthodox or the antiochians or whatever or the i'm trying to think of another i think georgia has their own so the georgians right right even though he's considered the preeminent by virtue of the office that he holds Right. It does not give him this broad authority to go in and just take control. Rome, on the other hand, today, the Pope is sovereign over all of the bishops. Right. And all bishoprics and all. I mean, he's the universal patriarch, for lack of a better word, in a different sense than what the Orthodox mean. And right. I don't I don't think I'm misrepresenting the Orthodox here, talking about the ecumenical patriarch. No, I, I think that's right. And yep. so now for us here, we're sitting you know, kind of in an awkward position because we're of a Protestant heritage. We'll get letters, but <laughs> so we are part of the West. We're not Eastern Orthodox. Okay. Right. We're distinctly part of the West by virtue of our confessions and everything else. That's, that's not insignificant. However, we reject the authority of the Pope of Rome mm-hmm. and even go so far as to call his office Antichrist. Such as how the Lutheran confessions see this idea that the Pope is the universal authority in the church on earth. Right. So we would actually agree with these canons. Sure. That there shouldn't be, that, that there is no one bishop who has, who has power over the whole church. And for a long time, Lutherans would have agreed that a bishop, as in the modern usage, rightfully had his authority over his diocese or over his, you know, region mm-hmm. or an archbishop, however it was. We didn't reject this kind of polity till much later. Right. And so this is very much applicable to Lutheran history. And we sure. certainly, we certainly affirm this and we shouldn't, we shouldn't shy away from that. And we should be thankful that we did respect authority of bishops because he got us, uh, you know, out of uh, jams a few times throughout history. But the one that I think causes the most trouble in the West is actually that third canon. And what is that third canon, Willie? That Constantinople, second to Rome, is, how would you put this, the preeminent bishopric? Right. And and so what that means then, or what that signifies is that Constantinople, the bishop of Constantinople has this special honor because Constantinople is the new Rome. So... They would, this council agrees, and, and the church in large part does, even the East, that Rome had a special significance. Right. And we'll get to that in a second. But because Constantinople is this new Rome, they now have preeminence second only to Rome. Right. Even though the city was only 51 years old at 51, this point. Yeah, it's the new kid Yeah, yeah, stepping up and saying, hey, 
it's like the you know the first year seminarian, you know, day one in Greek, correcting the English standard version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> These upstarts, right? But 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 because they had imperial significance, because they you know it, it was the capital of the new capital of the empire, they figured, hey. Let's give these Constantinople will be number two after Rome. And here's where you see a very interesting thing start to happen. And it looks like the seeds of the schism are actually much, much earlier than 1054, obviously. Right. But the conception of authority is different. The East sees it as more of a political reality. And I mean that in a positive way. It's spiritual, Mm -hmm. too, because bishops have that authority. But political in that's sort of how the lines are drawn for Rome, it's something more significant. It's a doctrinal right. succession, right? More than now, you know, for lack of a better word. I mean, obviously, the Orthodox are going to go up and say, "No, ours is for doctrinal reasons too." But, but as far as organization, the West is going to get more and more entrenched in the supremacy of the See of Saint Peter. That they're not going to bend at all when it comes to authority of the Pope, and eventually, the Pope is going to have all spiritual and temporal authority at least in a certain region in the West. Right. And so you, you start to see that early on, that the East has a very different conception of the authority of bishops than the West does, and that starts to brew you know, right here in the 300s. Yeah, because especially in the West now, with uh, the rise of this notion of, of succession, uh, the idea is, is that because they are descended from Peter, that is the reason why supposedly they have the authority as opposed to that, like you say, that political reality, which is just saying, Hey, this just makes the most sense in terms of logistics or something like that. Yeah. And the reason I think why the West rejects this one's the most is not, even though it says, and this is what's so interesting, even though it says Rome is still number one. Yeah. That's the strange thing. It still says, yeah, you're still the first, but they, they can't <laughs> accept it. But they can't accept it because it's basically moving towards this more pragmatic reality of, you're, you're number one because, well, you know, you're still important. Yeah, and the fact is Constantinople is where it's at. I mean, at that right. point. So they sort of see their grasp on power waning in, the, in right. that situation. And so now the, the popes are beginning to take um, important early steps towards this idea of succession. And we get the, the earliest expression of this in the year 382, actually where Pope Damasus issues parts of the uh, Decretum Gelasanium. I can never pronounce these things right. Um, thought to, it was called because it's thought to be from much later, a Pope Galasius. It's, it's a complicated history. This document is important as a canon list, as a list of the books of the Bible, but it also makes this very interesting statement. And I want to read this statement and really emphasize what it's getting at, because this is important for church history. After all these writings of the prophets and the evangelical and apostolic scriptures, which we discussed above, on which the Catholic Church is founded by the grace of God, we also have thought necessary to say what, although the universal Catholic Church diffused throughout the world is the single bride of Christ, however the Holy Roman Church is given first place by the rest of the churches without the need for a synodical decision big point there, without the need for a synodical decision, but from the voice of the Lord our Savior in the gospel obtained primacy. You are Peter, he said, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And to you I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind upon earth shall be bound also in heaven, and whatever you release upon earth shall also be released in heaven. Matthew 16. I mean, already in 382, you see the early seeds of this. Right. Why is that significant, Willie? Well, I mean, it's just how do you interpret? What's the rock? Is it Peter himself or the office, (laughs) his chair, or is it the confession itself? Well, Damascus seems to think that it's the sea. Right. That and it's Rome that's, itself. Yeah, this didn't just pop up, you know, like I say, around the year 1000 or something. And this is going to start very early, and that's where the contention is going to build and build and build. Until you essentially have Rome, who, who has sort of, like an octopus, sort of reached out and claimed all the West, and then the various churches of the East. I mean, one church, mm-hmm. but... We don't really have another way to describe them. So churches of the East. And and so that's going to be the same debate. And this debate comes up again during the Reformation. Right. Yeah. What is it? You know, what what is meant here? Because th- these are key verses. And this these are verses that we need to study and see what the church fathers said about them. Mm-hmm. Now, as you all have probably seen as we discussed this, all this entire episode, we'll say, well, one source says this. And we have a couple sources that say this. So you'll see that history becomes kind of murky with a lot of these theological things sometimes. That's why we, right. we're we happy that we have much clearer affirmations in, in most of the creeds. Well, when you start looking at like the letter or the decree that Zellin just wrote here, for example, you can find any other number of church fathers who don't interpret Matthew 16 that way. Right. Then you can find ones who do. And then right. you go to the apologists for the East and the apologists for, for Rome, and one will say, well, that's a forgery. And the other will say, no, your document's a forgery. Or you, you, that's a misinterpretation of Greek into Latin. Or the Greeks couldn't read Latin, and so that's why you're misinterpreting the fathers. And so you get this big circle here. So what you have to do is we have to sit down and look, not just at exegesis, really, for this, but also at history to see just right. how this was interpreted. Because this is a this is something that gets put into into effect, and that's why you do that's why you don't. I this is this is to me evidence that this isn't pointing to Peter himself or the chair of Saint Peter, simply because very early on you have Canon two affirmed the reemphasis on right. the sovereignty of jurisdictions. Right, that's very early. That's almost right at the beginning of the church. You have that, and mm-hmm. they're staying out of each other's way, but. The West has to sort of separate, the East and West have to kind of separate for this to really grow and expand this idea of the primacy of the papacy. It's, it's, worth, it's worth pointing out, too, in the political realm, the West for several centuries and now here in another century has been steadily declining right. um, in terms of political reality. And the East has basically stayed in more or less in good, solid control of itself so that eventually the West will fall off entirely and the Pope will basically be thrown on to his own resources. And then he's he's going to attach himself to new kingdoms in the West, which is very important for church history as well, because yeah. he needs that kind of protection. So I think it is also a political reality that the Pope has to deal with a an empire that's crumbling around him as well. Yeah, and you do start to see the consolidation of political power pretty soon then after the fall of the Roman Empire in mm-hmm. the West. So right. and then and then that leads up to essentially the papal states. I mean, even all the stuff fourteen hundreds, you know, France, Spain, all the Germany, all the all those shenanigans going on. 
Charlemagne. Yeah, yeah sure. all of it. And it's interesting how much of it actually turns on Matthew 16. Right? Yeah. And so, see, folks, exegesis matters. <laughs> the tagline of this episode. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it has dire consequences for world history. And now, you know, right. we live at a time since the 1800s, you know, it, the unification of Italy. And, you know, that's the really, that's sort of the the last time you see the, the Pope having any huge political power. Right. You know, after the unification of Italy, it's pretty much done. You know, today, does the Pope wield that much political power? I mean, maybe this one a little bit more, but not, not quite like what they, what they had. And, right. and yet, he's still seen as, to a lot of people who aren't studious of history, as the voice of the church on earth. Right. You know, like he speaks for all of us. East, West, right. Protestant, whatever. But, it, but why are people listening to the Pope today? Why does anyone even care what the Pope says? Well, because look at the history of the papal office and how it expanded and had just this great significance after the schism. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, maybe if they'd paid more attention to Canon too, you might be hearing, <laughs> at least on Western television, you might be hearing from some other bishops instead, <laughs> some other patriarchs. Oh, man. Anyway, I don't even know if we're going to finish all these canons, but let's go on. We've, I think we spent enough time there. So that was all canon right. three. Canon four, the deposition of Maximus. Who was Maximus? Well, these ones will be a lot quicker, I think. Yeah. Maximus was a very shady character who basically made himself bishop in Constantinople, secretly ordained by Egyptians. I mean, just a lot of shenanigans. And so the council basically said, this guy is invalid. He's he's never been a bishop because he isn't he isn't the real deal. And anyone who's been made a priest in his time isn't really a priest. And just basically shutting down his whole uh, charade. Yeah. Now, that's a very important point, too, uh, just real quick. We, we accept baptisms from apostates, right? Mm-hmm. And not necessarily from heretics, but maybe from people wrongly ordained. But mm-hmm. we, to this day, would not accept the ordination of someone from a denomination with a with a poor confession. Sure. The person would have yeah. the person would have to be ordained by a Lutheran. So even in our polity we sort of recognize some of this. This idea sure. that you, that a person who is a who is a heretic or who is illicitly ordained cannot rightly ordain someone. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah, the fifth canon is a real simple one too. They accept an earlier can, uh, an earlier council at Antioch which occurred in 378. It's basically, this probably came to pass in the year 382. This was basically just the East finally saying, okay, the homoousius is actually a pretty good thing and we're going to accept it. And so they're just saying, yeah, it's the real deal. I think that's a, a pretty straightforward way of talking about that one. What about number six, Willie? Limits the ability to accuse bishops of wrongdoing. Right. Which, now that's very interesting. And to immediately date the episode, you have the Pope's sermon that came out today where he essentially rebuked he rebuked the people who are accusing the bishops of mass cover-ups of abuses and things like that. Right. That's a very right. interesting one. Now, the context of this, though, is that those who are heretics or have been excommunicated may not press charges against a bishop. Right. So a little right. bit different there. Yeah, because the, the, this was a, a trick that the Arians had been using for a while to depose bishops, where they would just kind of come up with some charge that was kind of vague enough that, you know, you couldn't really prove it wrong. And as a result, the bishop would be kicked out of his of his office. And so it's just a way of saying, hey, guys, let's knock off the shenanigans. If you're going to if you're going to bring an accusation, man up and bring an accusation. 
and be public about it. And then lastly, which heretics must be baptized? Right. And this was just a distinguishing between certain groups of heretics, if they became orthodox, they need to become baptized, or they don't need to be baptized where other ones would need to be baptized. And which is a live issue today, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, do we accept, you know, baptism from X denomination or whatever? Right. Yeah. Why do why do we accept a Roman Catholic baptism, for example, if someone becomes Lutheran and not a Mormon? Right. For example. Right, right. Anything you want to add to it, Willie? No, I think we're good. Any 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 closing points? Well, and I think as we move forward now, you know, continuing to move forward in history, as we go on to Ephesus at the next council, it's just important to realize that history does matter. You know, this isn't just an exercise in facts and figures, but a recognition that the church has moved through time and that God preserves his church sometimes in very dire circumstances. Because you look at this point in history, before Theodosius, the Arians very, nearly had control of utterly everything. They were in control of the government. They were in control of large parts of the empire. You know, there were Arian emperors, there were Arian nations. And yet God uses men like Theodosius, to uh, raises them up and uses them to proclaim the truth and to give the truth a, a hearing so that the gospel can go out into the world. And so thank God for Theodosius. That's all I can say. Amen. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills. That was Zoe and Heidi. If you like what you hear, want to know more, check us out. WordFitlySpoken.org, Facebook.com slash WordFitly, or Twitter at WordFitly. If you've got any questions or comments, check out our Facebook discussion group, WordFitly Posting with a P. That's WordFitly Posting. God love you, and God bless.